Okay, this morning, we are in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. I've entitled this message, The Role of Women in the Church. You know, we live at a, at a time in history where God's natural design for a person's gender, whether male or female, is in question like never before. God has either created you to be a man or a woman, male or female, but now you can basically choose what you want to be, and we see that spread all over the news. Um, And I know that this whole thing with Bruce Jenner has caused a lot of people to begin to question this. And it's seen right now that we're supposed to accept that view as normal, right, and right now it's even been expressed that it's heroic. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that God created man and woman, and not only did he create us, but he created us with roles, that he has designed the roles for us, and it's very clear in Scripture what those are. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to address women in the church. Now, Paul had just finished speaking to the men about prayer, and he, and he flows from this idea of prayer and worship that the men are to lift up holy hands, worshiping God, and now he's going to talk about the women in the church and their worship. And if you remember, in that church in Ephesus, there was a real problem going on with doctrine. False teaching had come into the church, and I think it impacted the church and was impacting the roles of both the men and the women in the church. And so Paul this morning is going to address it straight on about the behavior of both the men and the women in the church. And what we're going to see this morning is three ways on how Christian women should conduct themselves in the church of God. So let's read the text. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15 says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So how should women conduct themselves in the church? The first thing we see is that women are to be known for their godly behavior and not their appearance. A Christian woman's behavior will express the love that she has for Christ, and that will impact the way she acts, but also the way she dresses. Look again at the text, verses 9 and 10. It says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. What Paul does is he's transitioning from what he just said in chapter 8 here, I mean in verse 8 here to verse 9, and he uses that word likewise. Now, he could also say, I also want. So in in verse 8 of 1 Timothy, he says, Therefore I want men to pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. And now he moves into this section And he says, likewise, or I also want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly. Paul had just spoke about how men should worship. 
that their lives, lifting up holy hands, it's, it's godly living, that that should be an example of how men live, and that should impact their worship. And now he talks about the impact of a woman's life in the way that she worships. And part of that impact will be on how she dresses, how she adorns herself. Now, I think what was happening in the church here, particularly from chapter 5, there seemed to be a problem with some of the women in the church because Paul has to address very sternly purity of the women in the church. And I think what was happening is some of the women were giving themselves over to sexual pleasures instead of pursuing God and godliness. And so there are going to be three main issues. And the first issue that Paul deals with here is the appearance and how that appearance of a woman particularly here, how it impacts their witness for Christ. He says there to adorn, that means to wear, to adorn themselves with proper clothing. Adorn is the word in the Greek, it's called cosmeo. We get the word cosmetics from it. And what it means is it means to arrange, to put in order, to make ready. The idea is a woman needs to ready herself for worship. That as she's preparing her heart, it's going to impact the way she dresses. And she's going to be mindful of the way she appears to others. It impacts the way others might be able to worship Paul is saying that that women are to come to church ready to worship God. And they are to be dressed in a way that is tasteful and not alluring to men. That they're to dress in a way that won't cause people when they walk in, if you will, to gawk at them and to stare at them and to cause them to stumble or to pull their focus away from Christ and to focus on them instead. Now, you, you may think, well, this is something that they had to deal with in that culture. Guys, we deal with it in every culture. And I... Honestly, I just got a card about three weeks ago of a guy complaining that he was struggling in the church because there were certain women dressed in a certain way that kept causing him to stumble. It's a real deal. It's in our church. I think it's in our culture. And so what Paul says here, he says, women are to dress modestly and discreetly. Um, He's not asking you to put on a burlap sack. He's asking you to have a heart for Christ and And that heart for Christ will begin to direct the way that you allow yourself to appear before others. And he uses the word modest. It's it's modest in in terms of what it reveals, literally how much skin is exposed. Clothing is to be discreet. It's not to draw attention to yourself. Because they were having problems in that church. Women were dressing in such a way as to say, hey, look at me, look at me. I want to be seen. You know it's summertime, right? Now, we are right across the street from the high school over there, and I don't know if you've noticed, but short shorts are back. And I mean, as short as they can go, that's what's being worn by a number of the young girls in our culture today. And Paul would say that is not appropriate in the church of Christ. It's not appropriate when you come to worship the Lord to dress in such a way that it causes men particularly to look and leer at you. And not only is it what a woman wears, but in that culture particularly, also the hair was an issue. And so Paul says here, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or, or costly garments. In that culture in Ephesus, the way a woman dressed, and particularly the way she wore her hair and the certain types of clothes she wore, most women didn't have the money to wear expensive clothes or to do all the braiding and all that. So if a woman showed up in that culture, there, it was one of two types of women. One, it would be a prostitute. They had temple prostitutes for the worship of the goddess Diana. Or it would be women who were wealthy. And speaking about a prostitute, the philosopher Philo, 
He lived during Paul's time. This is what he said. He said, a prostitute is often described as having hair dressed in elaborate braids, her eyes with pencil lines, her eyebrows smothered in paint. Her expensive clothes are embroidered lavishly with flowers and bracelets and necklaces and gold and jewels all over her. And so he's saying, ladies, be careful on the way that you do your hair and be careful on what you wear because it'll give people the wrong impression and it'll cause them to look at you. And not only was it evidence of what a prostitute would wear, but in that culture, in that day, the wealthy women, they had this special thing they used to do with their hair, and I've seen pictures of it. And they would braid their hair in such a way that it literally would develop a tower on their head, sometimes 18 to 20 inches above their head. It's like the Leaning Tower of Pizza as they walk in the church, and everybody would be stunned as they walk in. And think if she sat in front of you, you're trying to say, I can't see, right? Well, that's the idea. But what she would do is she would put gold and jewels and pearls. Why? Demonstrate her wealth. Look at me. That's the idea here. And the point of all this is in, in that world, in that day, but also in this world, in all our day, there's a preoccupation with the outward appearance of women. Would you say that's true? Very true, right? And I understand this is a delicate situation, and I've been praying a lot over this message because I realize I'm on the firing line because I'm presenting it to you, but hey, don't shoot the messenger. This is the Word of God. What Paul is going to do here, he brings out this idea about appearance, and women, be careful how you dress as a Christian woman, but then he's going to make a comparison. Look at the text. Look at verse 10. He says, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Instead of stressing the external, Paul is going to say, hey, stress the internal. Instead of stressing how you look, think more about your heart before God. And what he says, he says, they should adorn themselves with good good works. It's not about how you look, but it's about who you are and what you do that matters more to God. And he says, rather by means of good works, that word good is agathon, and it refers to works, not not works on how to look good, but morally good works, works that benefit others, that honor Christ, and it displays a heart that is right with God. It displays a heart that is given over to Christ. He says, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness, that word making a claim is the word Epangelo, and it means to make a public announcement. Your works for Christ, the way you serve the Lord, the way that you act and treat others in a Christ-like manner, and the way that you appear, it's going to pronounce that you love Him. And godliness means the way that you live your life. Is it in a godly manner? It literally could mean reverence for God, how you worship Him. Paul's trying to say women are to be known for their godly behavior, their reverence for Christ, and not just their appearance. This is the same thing that 1 Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, Your adornment must not be merely external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, a putting on of dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So the woman's primary adornment is to be the adornment of her heart her heart before Christ, and that in turn is going to impact the way that she dresses, the way that she treats others. It's going to impact and be a witness for everyone around her. The heart will dictate what you wear is what he's saying. And when you do that, 
when you are known for your godly behavior, when you are known for the goodness that exudes from you because you love the Lord, you'll be seen as beautiful both in the eyes of men but also in the eyes of God. Now, there's a book that's out, and it's, it's entitled The Veneer, and the authors are Timothy Willard and Jason Losey, and they argue that contemporary American culture often values image or appearance over the depth of character. This is what they said. They said, embarrassed by the scars of our humanity, we try to hide our brokenness. We use a veneer to cover ourselves, hoping others will perceive us as having a greater worth, as being more beautiful and perfect than what we feel inside. As a specific example of this veneer or image, we try to project to other people. And the point that they use here is they use a common article of clothing, the jean, jeans, Levi Strauss jeans as an example. When Levi Strauss first introduced jeans to a miracle, his sales pitch was simple, durable pants for the working class folk. Strauss didn't pay much attention to fashion. Jeans were a working garment for the gold miners of that day. And no one really cared what they looked like. They had to be durable. They had to work well. But over time, that changed, and a certain subculture of teens adopted the jeans as a symbol of rebellion in the 1950s and then into the 60s, and they appeared in movies and magazines worn by Kuriak, worn by Dean, worn by Brando, and they were worn less for the ability to handle a hard day's work and more as a statement to say anti-something. But then in 1980, a 15-year-old Brooke Shields slid on a pair of boots and a pair of Calvin Klein jeans, and with the flash of a camera... Designer jeans became the must-have for women. And the outward look became much more important than how the clothes wore or were used for in a practical way. But for women of Christ, what's supposed to matter is your heart before God. And that heart will direct how you appear to others. Now, some of you are thinking, well, Pastor Rob, you're a man. You don't have a clue the pressure that I'm under as a woman to look in a certain way. And true. But I have a daughter and I have a wife. And I've seen the pressure on them. But I want you to hear what the Bible says, what matters most to God. Think about what matters to God and not man. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Be more concerned with that. That's the first thing. Women are to be known for their godly behavior and not their appearance. Second thing, in the church, women are to be humble and teachable and should not teach or exercise authority over a man. I'm going to say it again. Women are to be humble and teachable and should not teach or exercise authority over a man. This is verses 11 through 14. God has designed the roles of men and women both in the family and in the church. Look at verses 11 through 14. It says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. And I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. I want to begin here with the attitude of humility. We know that our Lord loves a humble heart. James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God gives grace to the humble, but he's opposed to the proud. And ladies, I just want to give you a warning right up. This section right here is going to press against your pride. It is. 
It's going to be a, a pushing against the pride that is in every one of us. And be careful. I'm asking you to have a humble heart right now and listen to the word of God. Men, this is going to press on your pride. You're going to think that somehow this is saying that you're better than women as God has designed it that way. You're wrong. So I want to start there with a heart of humility as we approach this text. I want to begin with men and women are equal in the eyes of God. And women, you are deeply, deeply loved by the Lord. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. There is equality spiritually with the man and the woman. But in this section particularly, Paul is going to talk about the design of men and women in the church, the roles that God has designed. And from the beginning, man and woman have had different roles. God gave the first man, Adam, the leadership role. That's Genesis 2-7. And he created Adam first, and then he created Eve, the woman, from the man as a partner, as a helpmate, a helper, to correspond with him in a complementary way. God gave the man the moral instructions, and he taught him the design of the garden, and that's Genesis 2, 15 through 17, but God did not repeat those instructions to Eve. Adam was responsible to provide that instruction for Eve and his family after her and its fulfillment. Man's role as a leader was displayed when the woman was made for man, and man named her woman. But the woman was not created in an inferior position, but she was made for man to complement him in the roles that they were designed for. God designed man and woman with different roles, not as a slave for the woman, but as a partner in oneness. So God designed the roles of man and woman to complement each other, and they were designed to be different. And if God wanted to teach us that man and woman would share responsibility for leadership equally, he would have first have created simultaneously instead of given priority to the man. Second, he would have instructed them together instead of entrusting the moral design to the man. Third, he would have presented her as an independently formed partner instead of presenting her as one derived from the man designed as a helper. And fourth, he would have named them both instead of giving the man the responsibility to name the woman. Man was designed to lead and woman was designed to complement that leadership role. Man and woman were both made in the image of God, equally valued, and together they were to tend the garden. They were to subdue the earth. They were to multiply. They were naked before each other and they were unashamed. And then came the fall. The fall of man and woman the relationship changed due to sin. So in Genesis chapter 2, they're unashamed. You turn the page to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, and suddenly they experienced shame. Now Eve, the woman, she was guilty. She was guilty because she did not obey God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but also from not submitting to God's design to allow the man to lead. She took over that leadership role. She made the decision to lead the way and eat of the tree. Adam was guilty for not obeying God's command not to eat of the fruit, but also for not stepping in and in protecting his wife in a leadership role. Sin distorted their roles. The woman's pride led the way, but the man acquiesced 
to the leadership role that God had called them to. They were both guilty. Now, we need to understand the culture of Judaism when Paul is writing this. The Jews in that day had a very low view of women. Jewish historian Josephus wrote this. He said, the woman, says the law, is in all things inferior to man. One of the most widely cited rabbinic sayings from the Mishnah has a threefold daily prayer. This is what they would pray every day. Praise be to God that he has not created me a Gentile. Praise be to God that he has not created me a woman. And praise be to God that he has not created me an ignoramus. Jewish culture, a very low view of women. But when you read the Bible, it lifts women on high and gives them equal value with God. As a matter of fact, when Jesus taught, he brought dignity and value and worth back to women. And he always, but he always affirmed that they had different roles than men. When he spoke about them, equal spiritually. When he spoke about the roles, different. Now we see this equality when Jesus talked about salvation. Jesus went out of his way to save the Samaritan woman, didn't he, in John chapter 4. He spoke to her and she was converted. He also healed men and women equally. Remember when he healed the woman in Mark chapter 5, that she was bleeding for 12 years. Jesus had a number of women that followed him and supported him, and he taught them, and he cared for them, and he loved them. Who did Jesus reveal himself first to when he resurrected from the grave? It was a woman. It was Mary. But when it comes to the roles of men and women, the leadership role Jesus gave to men, he gave that leadership role to 12 apostles, and then those 12 apostles gave that leadership role to other men that were called by God. And the women came alongside in a supportive role to complement their leadership. And now with that complementary view in mind, look at verse 11. It says, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. The first thing he says about the role of a woman is that she's supposed to be a learner, that she's teachable. That word there, manathano, is a present active imperative, and it's a command And it's the word that's used for a disciple. He's saying that women are to be discipled in the church. They're to be taught and they're to learn. They're to have the role of a learner. They're to be open and teachable to the word of God and receive instruction from the man that's called by God. Not just any man, the man called by God. Now, most rabbis in Jesus' day refused to greet women, and they would not teach women. And I think what was happening in the church is that there were some Jewish men that were complaining that these women were being taught. And Paul would say, no, we're to teach the ladies. We're to teach them the word of God. They need the word of God. It's essential to their spiritual life. What did Jesus do? He taught the multitudes, right? Men, women, and children. Remember, Mary would sit at his feet and would listen to his instruction. This is what the church is to do. Teach men, women, children. But, Paul says, women are to receive the teaching quietly and submissively. When the church gathers together, women are to listen to the men called by God to teach. And it says here, quietly and submissively. I think the reason he puts that, it shows a humble spirit willing to listen to those that God has called in that position of leadership. The word quietly is the word hesokia, and it appears at the beginning of verse 11 and at the end of verse 12. It's like a bracket. And what Paul's bracketing here is that the role and the principle means that the woman is to be a learner. If she's quiet, she can't be teaching. 
That's the idea. He says she's to sit and receive the word of God gratefully as the men called by God present the word. Submissiveness translates hupatage, and it means to line up under. It's in the context of worship, and it means that women are to be silent but content with that role that God has placed for them to learn the word of God presented to them. Now, some, some people have tried to evade the plain meaning of the text, and they argue that heshukia here means a meek and quiet spirit. So if a woman has a meek and quiet spirit, then she can lead as a pastor or preacher. That's one extreme. There's another extreme that basically says women can't talk at all in a church. Both of those extremes, I think, are wrong because in the context, Paul makes it plain in the next verse. Look here at verse 12. It says, but I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. In the church, men and women have different roles. Now, I want to kind of walk this through with you from the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there were five women that were known as prophetesses. They prophesied, if you will, for God. But none of these women had an ongoing role as a prophet. Miriam, Moses' sister, was considered a prophetess because she led the women in song in Exodus 15. Deborah, in Judges 4, was considered a prophetess because she spoke to Barak, but she was not engaged in an ongoing role as a prophet. Huldah was used by God to prophesy in 2 Kings twenty-two fourteen about the fall of Jerusalem and Judah. Noadiah was called a false prophetess in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 14. And the last one, Isaiah's wife, in Isaiah 8, 3, she's called a prophetess because she gave birth to a, to a child whose name had a prophetic meaning. So you have one prophetess that gave birth to a child whose name has a prophetic meaning, another one who wasn't a prophet at all, she was a false prophetess, and then you have three women that at one time God used them to speak the word of God, but none of them had the prophetic role, ongoing ministry as a prophet. Also in the Old Testament, you have no ongoing role called by God as a teacher or as an evangelist or as a preacher. Now, women were used mightily in the Old Testament, and we'll get to that in the morning. In the Old Testament, women were valued. But now when you look at the New Testament, women, men and women are seen equally in terms of the blessing and the privilege that comes from salvation. Again, Galatians 3.28 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. In the context, that's dealing with salvation, not with roles. And in the era of salvation, equality, but different roles for the men and women. In the New Testament, there are no women in the roles of a preacher, as a pastor, or a teacher. Now, you have Priscilla and Aquila that together they shared with Apollos, but Priscilla's role was not one officially as a teacher. Nowhere in the New Testament did women write any of the scriptures. Now, we know in the Old Testament, you have the book of Ruth and you have Esther, but those were also both written by men. Now, I'm not saying that women weren't mightily used in both the Old and the New Testaments. They were. Timothy was raised by his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. Think about our Lord Jesus. Mary gave him birth, and, and then also she raised him. I think about Esther, how she was used to save the nation of Israel. Women have been mightily used by God, but nowhere in the scriptures have they been given that role as a teacher or a preacher, or an evangelist. 
So Paul does not forbid women to teach under appropriate conditions and circumstances. But what he does forbid them to do is to fill the office and the role as a pastor or an official teacher or an evangelist within the church. Paul is saying that the role has been reserved for only called men. Now, I'm making that specific because it's men called by God, not all men. Women, you're not supposed to just submit to men. That's not the point. It is that God has called men to lead in a church structure. And and what Paul's going to do, he's going to deal with that in the next chapter, chapter 3. And so what Paul says here is, I don't allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. That word authority is authentian, and it means authority in the context of this church setting. It means that women are not to lead in the authority of spiritual teaching, but to remain quiet. Again, back to this point, if you're quiet, you're not teaching, kind of stressing that point. Now, this doesn't totally outrule that women can teach. Now, we know in Titus chapter 2, the older women are to instruct the younger women. Women are also to instruct their children. We see that with Timothy and his mother and grandmother. But also in certain circumstances, under the lead and the head of the pastor or the elder of the church, women can instruct, but it's under their leadership. And so what Paul does to support this, he references back to verses 13 and 14. Look at those. He says, for it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but woman being deceived fell into transgression. It was Adam who was first created, then Eve. What Paul's doing here, he's connecting the order within church leadership with the order of creation. And he uses the same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven three. He says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. So Paul asserts that man is the head of woman, and Christ is the head of man. And this order of leadership that God has designed is, is given the order that Paul said, that should also be the order in the church. Now, in 1 Corinthians eleven eight, this is what Paul says. He says, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for man's sakes. Both these statements in 1 Corinthians when the women basically are saying that there is a leadership position that God has designed and that the man is called to lead first. Now, when men and women marry, they're considered one in the eyes of God. They're equal in value, but the roles are different within the marriage context. It says here that Eve was made for Adam. She was made to complement the man. She was made to be a helpmate, a, a helper for him. She was designed by God to follow his lead, to follow his provision, to find safety in his strength, protection in his courage. That was God's original design. There was a tendency that was placed in Eve to follow Adam. But at the fall, that tendency was reversed. In the curse, the tendency to rule came into Eve. And with that came conflict. So if you look at verse 14, it says, it was not Adam who was deceived, but woman being deceived fell into transgression. The fall of the man and woman from innocence was accompanied by a dramatic reversal in the roles that God had designed. The influence of the tempter was very subtle. He cleverly went around God's order and he blatantly addressed the woman, not the man. And he attempted her to assume the role as spokesman and leader 
Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now, as you look down on that text in Genesis, down in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says that the man was with her. In verse 6, it says that she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Adam abdicated his role. She accepted the serpent's challenge. She became the spokesman and leader, but Adam wasn't there to protect her. And as we all know, the rest is history. The woman was designed to complement the man, to be a support to him, but he was to be the head and the leader and the protector and the savior. And when she stepped out on her own to lead and he abdicated that role, she suddenly was set up and vulnerable. And that's what Paul is saying about it in the church. He's saying in the very inherent nature of women, it is important that she falls under the leadership role of the men that God has called to lead because when that doesn't happen, that protection is not there and woman is in danger and set up for a fall. So when the woman then in verse 14 was deceived, that term there deceived is very strong. It means fully, thoroughly, and completely deceived. But she wasn't alone in that deception. The man was deceived as well. And they both ate of the fruit and sin came in. And so the point here is honor God. Trust in his design. If you do, you'll find blessing and protection. But when you turn away from that, you set yourself up for a fall. That's the point. Men are called to lead in the church. Women are called to complement that leadership. The problem's not the design. The problem is sin. When the fall happened and sin came in, That's when conflict began. And so Paul is saying, in the home, men, you're supposed to lead. But the problem is this, isn't it, women? The men aren't leading as unto Christ. And men, I'm calling you out. Too many men do not take their role, God-given role, to lead the home as Christ loved the church. You're to be a man of God. Your example is to be to your wife that she wants to follow your lead because you love Christ so much, you're treating her in a Christ-honoring way. And too many men turn that away from that role. Men, be men of Christ. Do what's right. Lead your home. And the same is true in the church. God calls men to lead in a certain way, to honor God, honor his word. We're to shepherd the flock of God. And there's great fear and trembling on a pastor's part, making sure that we line up with what the scriptures say because we understand the authority God has given us and we don't take it lightly. But the scriptures are clear. In the church, men, the elders called by God are to lead. And then all those under that authority are submit to that as unto Christ. You know, when missionary Elizabeth Elliot lost her martyred husband, Jim Elliot, after the massacre of her husband, and several other missionaries in Ecuador, she was the only biblically trained person who was left to speak the Akua language. She was the only one left there. But she decided to trust in God's word and what the Bible teaches, particularly here in 1 Timothy. And she was convinced that she could not preach to the men in terms of the congregation. So what she decided to do is she humbly asked one man who showed leadership And she asked if she could help him develop a sermon so that he could go in and preach to the church. That's the idea. Well, Pastor Rob, what about the workplace? I mean, are women allowed in the workplace to have a leadership position? 
I see no restrictions on the roles of women when it comes to secular work. Colossians 3, 1 Timothy chapter 6 speak about a master-slave relationship. And in that role, women we know, Lydia had a fabric business, all those things. We know that women are called to lead both men and women. But if you're a Christian, it's to be done in a Christ-like manner, in a way that honors Christ, that you display godliness to those people. So, but in the church, women are known for their godly behavior, not their appearance. Women are to be humble and teachable and should not teach or exercise authority over a man. Here's the final one. Women are to trust in God's plan for them. Women are to trust in God's plan for them. In life, when we don't trust the Lord, that's when the problems start. 1 Timothy 2.15 says, But women will be preserved through childbearing, through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, it begins here, but women will be preserved through childbearing. Now, that word preserved can be translated saved, and I think it should be translated saved. But we know that Paul cannot be talking that women will be saved by the bearing of children because nowhere in Scripture are women ever saved in any kind of a work or by something that you do. I think there's a better way to translate this verse, and I'm going to kind of walk you through that. Now, we know that that first word preserved is the Greek word sozo, and it's most often translated saved. It's in the future tense, so it's not speaking about Eve. It's looking forward to women. And also, it says they will be saved or rescued through the birth, and it's in the singular of a child. That word children there in the Greek is the Greek word technon, and here in this verse, if you look at the Greek, it's actually singular, and it has a definite article in it. And so the best way to translate this would be the birth of the child. And so I think the best way to say this is that women will be saved through the birth of the child. He's speaking about Christ there. He's saying that the salvation of women will happen through the birth of the child. And I think what Paul is doing right here, he's connecting what he said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 where he said that God desires that all men would come to the knowledge, be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And if you think about it in context, the stigma of sin is placed on the woman because it was Eve that first ate of the fruit. And so he's saying that there's a way to turn that around. And the only way to turn around that stigma is that the child is going to be born through a woman. Paul is saying the savior of the world is going to be born through a woman. And then women that receive that Savior will be saved. In Genesis 3.16, there was a curse that came on the woman. And that curse was, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What that means, basically, is after the fall, her desire would be to rule over her husband and dominate instead of allowing him to lead. But when God sent the Savior, he righted that wrong. Now, women, you have the ability to honor Christ, and live in a way that honor his original design. In verse 15 of Genesis 3, God made this pronouncement to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. The one seed that crushes Satan's head is Christ. And he did that on the cross. And when Christ died on the cross, he destroyed Satan's plan, and now God's plan took over. And God's plan is that you would know him. 
As a matter of fact, Jesus said this in John 17, 3 in his final prayer. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So trusting in God's plan first begins with you must know the Savior. Do you trust in the Savior? Because you will not be able to live in those design roles without the help of a Savior. That's the point. And then when you receive the Savior and that transformation, that born-again experience has taken place, now you're going to have other things that flow from that. And basically, it's four things. It's going to be faith and love. It's going to be sanctity and self-restraint, which is modesty. A woman's greatest fulfillment comes in knowing Jesus Christ. And when you know Jesus Christ, what will flow from that first is faith. Jesus is the author and the finisher of your faith. You come into the kingdom of God through faith by trusting in Christ. And in that, it changes you and reverses that role back and allows you to humbly submit to the natural design and order that God had planned. Not only that, God pours out his love into you. He humbles you. And now you're able to display the love of Christ to others. And the third thing here. Knowing Christ, it's evidenced by sanctity, which is basically godly living. People will see that Christ is in you by the way that you live. And lastly, and it goes back to one of the first words he said in the beginning. He uses the word self-restraint, but it's the same word. It's modesty. It's a humble position where you're willing to be modest before God. For the church to depart from this divine order, guys, it is disaster. But to honor God's desired roles protects the church it honors his word, and it protects the women in the church. Now, I don't know if you've seen this movie. It's My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Great movie. You've got to see it. But Maria Portacola, she's the mother, and she's speaking to the, her daughter, Tolia. And to Tolia, Tolia's upset because her father won't allow her to go to college. And so the mother's saying that she can change her husband's mind And I think there's a lot of truth in this, and I want you to hear what she says. She says, the man is the head of the home, but the woman is the neck, and she can turn the head any way she wants. (laughs) Yeah. Ladies, we men, we need your help. And there's a truth to that statement. But in the church, God has called us to lead, but you bring a strength and a beauty and a grace and a perspective into worshiping God that edifies the Lord and strengthens the church. And we're grateful for you. Let's pray. Well, Father, I thank you for the word of God. I, I thank you, Lord, that there's just honesty on the pages. Help us to be a church that will always lean into the word and that will trust your divine plan, Lord, and that everything that you do is right and perfect. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I please-